Hello, everybody. I hope you're not feeling too small today. I hope you're feeling nice and tall. This is Ray Renati, and you have reached Green Room on Air, my little spot in the corner of the interwebs. How all you greenies doing today? So great that you stopped by again, and if this is your first time, let me tell you what we do here. Mostly, I interview people in the world of the performing arts, sometimes people you've never heard of, sometimes people you have, and today... We have a very special guest for you, and her name is Amy Greenberg. Amy's a true New Yorker, a true New Yorker, who's worked with some of the best teachers in the business, like Sanford Meisner, Wynne Handman, and Stella Adler. And she's got some serious off-Broadway creds as well, having cut her teeth at La Mama, etc. Theater for the New City and the Medicine Show Theater. Amy's collaborated with some of the big names in the industry, too, like Grotowski, Augusto Boal, and Guillermo Gentile. She's also raked in quite a few prestigious awards and fellowships, like the Asian Cultural Council Fellowship and a whole bunch more. With her wealth of knowledge and experience, Amy's been teaching performance technique, writing, directing theater, and film studies at international conservatories and universities all across the country. So, let's get into it, folks, as we talk to Amy about her career experiences working with theater icons and what she thinks about the industry today. Thanks for coming on today, Amy. How are you? Good. All right. Thanks for having me. You bet. We just met recently. We were working on this project together, the Ukraine Project. Right. Yeah, I think it's a, it's kind of like a, a hybrid project, a, a stage reading, but very sort of docudrama in form, I think, more than anything. So it goes over the historical events in Ukraine, the Holdemore, the famine, the Maidan revolution, and then takes you up to date with some lovely poetry and, and the current war. It's a benefit for the Ivano Frankivist, Frank, Frank Frankivist. I don't know if I'm saying it right. Theater. Close <laughs> enough. In Ukraine. And I, I believe this is part two of this experience that you were already involved in, part one. And, and did they raise money for a generator for the theater? Or is that what they're doing now? I think. I think that's what they're doing now. Originally, it was just sort of a general fund. I don't know where the money went. I know it went to them, and I, I think we raised a little over three thousand dollars. And they're they're continuing to do productions, and they're also housing people who have been affected by the war, right? Apparently, right. so yeah. I mean, for me, it feels good to to feel like I'm doing something, right? Uh, however tiny little effect it has, if everybody just does a little bit, and even has some good wishes or prayers if you're religious and I get things will help so speaking of religion so it's going to be Saturday April 29th at 2 p.m at the Ukrainian Music Hall and Event Center at the St. Michael Ukrainian Orthodox Church which is 345 7th Street in San Francisco it's also sponsored by the Ukrainian American Coordinating Council if you want to get a ticket, you need to go on ukhist.org. 
That's exactly how it sounds, short for history. So UKHIST, H-I-S-T dot org. And the Eventbrite page is there. You just press the ticket link and you can make your donation there or you can make it in person if you buy a ticket in person. So I think you can just go to Eventbrite and search on Ukraine on stage and it'll show up as well. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I'll just put the link in the show notes so people can go directly to it. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I'm, I'm, I've just kind of organized this, I, I guess. I guess they asked a director to come in and give a a third eye because you had too many cooks, right? So Yeah, well, we really didn't have a real, who'd been a director in the past or have any experience really in directing. We had a great, really good actor helping us out, but she she wanted to find help us find somebody else who directed and i think she did and and that's how you got involved right so tell us about yourself how did how did you get started in theater oh gosh middle school <laughs> yeah middle, middle school drama middle middle school asked and i think it saved i think theater saved my life at some point not just that's a dramatic statement but it was the expressive tool and I continued it in high school. I was always a writer too, though, but then I, I got into acting. And in college, I thought maybe I would study marine biology because I love the, the ocean. But then I went back to theater. So yeah, that's how I started. It's been a long, long road. It was similar for me. I started in middle school. And, and then like the guy who interviewed you on the other podcast, I got into sports. Is I was listening to this. I was like, God, this is... I think he already did my podcast, but yeah, <laughs> you two should connect. <laughs> you should do a pod. You should be his guest on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I remember. I think you and I are around the same age, and we have kids around the same age. And I remember back when I was in high school and college, marine biology was like a, a kind of a big, cool thing to do. Yeah, you used to have a lot of people say they wanted to be in involved in marine biology but and then the that. math the math came into the picture and yeah. I was like, oh yeah. oh no <laughs> for me it was chemistry oh my god yeah yeah i, I still don't get it i i mean all the, the the hooking up the little molecules and everything i just right way beyond my capacity there's a romantic aspect of going out into the sea and 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 touching sea life and analyzing them but there's a lot more technical oh I, it's way more scientific than that. Yeah. It's not just playing with dolphins and talking to whales. Right. Right. Yeah. So did you did you go to school? Did you go to college or did you get a master's in anything that had to do with the Oh, where did you go? Well, I, I went to a bunch of schools. <laughs> I went to Buffalo. I went to I graduated from Queens College. I was briefly at NYU, not not really to to matriculate there, but just to do some work. And then I got, well, then I went, then I just studied in New York, the benefit of, of having New York City as your, your hometown and your playground as an actor was really invaluable because I could do what they do at NYU is they farm, you pay a lot of money and then they farm you out to these acting studios. So I, I got my degree and also in, in film and English. And then I was able to go and study with Sandy Meisner and, and Stella Adler and, and Wynn Hanman, who is Sandy Meisner's partner. And then he, he branched out on his own. He started the American Place Theater and, and he was just a phenomenal teacher, like a, an incredible influence on me. And Wynn Hanman was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. 
I mean, all of them were, but yeah. Wynn had a way of just getting, figuring out who you were, where you were at, and then taking you where you're at in terms of characters and roles and, and, and scenes and playwrights, and then stretching you and having you play thing, play characters that you, you, you wouldn't get cast in necessarily that you didn't, you weren't that type. So he was brutally honest, but he was kind and a kind curmudgeon. And I just learned a lot from him. We did a lot of material ranging from Sam Shepard and, and every actor you can imagine. So we got some juicy material and yeah, I was honored and privileged to work with him and work with the people that he worked with and be part of that small, small club. I wound up later on getting a master's in California for, for drama therapy, but that's, that's related, but different, but I won't talk about it right now. Okay. <laughs> Not a lot of drama therapists around, I don't think. Yeah. Wow. So I don't know a lot about Win Hand, but it sounds very intriguing. Well, there's a great documentary on Netflix called It Takes a Lunatic, and you should watch it. It's all about him. It's it's long, but it's fantastic. Okay, I am definitely going to watch that because I don't I don't know a lot about him. I, of course, I know a lot about Sandy Meisner and Stella Adler. Yeah, well, he he worked with Sandy for a long time, and then and then left and started his his own thing. He died a couple of years ago. I found out from COVID, and he was he was like ninety four. Yeah. Yeah. Bad. Well, at least he had a long life. Yeah. Was he similar in Sandy Meisner in the way that he taught? Yeah. I mean, he, Sandy took him under his wing and then was his, he was like his protege, but he was like a different style. Sandy was extremely abrasive, but everyone loved him for that too. But so Sandy's big thing was repetition and those exercises related to that. Wynn did a little bit of that, like during the scene study, if he would do different exercises to get you more connected to the character or more committed to the moment or figuring out what was lacking or missing. Or he was very big on as ifs, the imaginary mm. as if. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think it, well, I was playing St. Joan and sort of like Michael Chekhov, I guess. Yeah. 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 I remember he said to me, he gave me the role of Joan in Shaw's St. Joan, and it was really a great, a great thing he did because it boosted my my confidence. And he's like, What do you what do you feel like? What what is the as if? And I think I said, like, it's as if I'm holding the whole world. The world is just like this ball, and I've got it in my hands, and it just like went right into the material, and that was it. I love that. Yeah. I love that because it really helps you learn how to use your imagination and apply it to the scene. Yeah, he was very big on the imagination and the given circumstances, of course. And he just knew so much about every style and, and so many playwrights that he had he had worked with. Or he just knew their material. So there was neat. And Stella Adler, I I took classes for about five years from a woman named Jean Shelton here in San Francisco, who was one of Stella Adler's longtime students. And Stella had the reputation of being pretty, pretty rough on people. Right. Yeah. I think she was rough. She, she liked, it's, it's a stereotype. I mean, it's a, it's a generalization, but she, she tended to like men more than women. 
she tended to talk about Marlon Brando a lot, who she sort of cultivated and thrust out into the world there. So she was very, very passionate and dramatic, would like rip her shirt or do things if she was exasperated. And so that was her. She had someone, Pearl, who taught with her, which was she was much more subdued. So I, I took some classes with her. Stella's script interpretation class was phenomenal. Yes. And, and so was Jean's, who who learned from Stella, who was one of her protégés. And I learned learned so much from that script analysis. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I find, I don't know about you, but a lot of newer actors these days, they don't understand the importance. And I'm not trying to diss anybody here, but I, it's, I was driven into me by her, by Jean, that it's so important to get into the details of every word and beat in the script and really understand what the author is trying to do and be very, very specific about what it is that's in, in the words. And it's yeah. super important. And the objectives and yeah, yeah, objectives, yeah. instead of ge being general about everything. Well, the the you the young people, they they if they don't have the training, they don't have the patience, they don't have the attention span because everything's very quick, quick moving and everything's very visual now. So I mean there are people that don't even read. There are lots of people that they can read, but they don't read anymore. So to make someone really dig into a script. I don't know. I don't know how young, young actors that are working professionally, especially in film and TV, I, I don't know how they, they deal with it, but that's a whole other meaning. No, yeah, it's another, another thing, but I just love how she taught us how to look at a script sort of as if you had a microscope and you're really getting into it and what does every moment mean to you at that in that scene and as the character it's it's just fascinating and i love it anyway can you tell me about the dark moon of lilith i was really intrigued by that on your website yeah oh lilith i i love that piece things come to me when i'm creating something that's original like an image flies out of nowhere and that's usually like the first image, the primary image. For me, in, in creating my own work, image is essential, image as metaphor. And that's how it starts. I, I, I don't remember what the first image was with Lilith, but I would, if I looked at the beginning of the script, which I can no longer find because it was done on another computer and I disappeared, but I have video of it, so I could transcribe it. But anyway, that's another story ancient technology right oh but, you can uh, use ai actually now to you could if you have a video it can listen to the words and translate the whole thing and i can show you how to do that later okay cool if you're interested uh, and it's so really easy i was like i was intrigued with the goddess and this this there was a lot of material a lot of literature this book about the sacred prostitutes from way 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 back and there were all these connections that I was making with like a Lilith, the Lilith from the Bible is some, some evil, evil, evil woman, the evil side of Eve and a modern day, what would be like a modern day Lilith. And yeah, so there was just a lot going on for me. And at the same time, I was digging into research about this serial killer who I wound up going to high school with and who lived at the end of my block when I grew up. So I somehow incorporated his story into, 
all the Liliths were like either feminine or masculine. They were Lilith and 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 Liam. He was he was the serial killer. And I had another version of Lilith. I can't remember the name right now. But so and I used a lot of like physical. It was very, very physical. I used masks. I used found objects. I used a lot of vocal. I did a lot of vocal work and like sound work. And um, yeah, I created this thing about the story of Lilith going like all the way back to the witches, to the modern day. And it was all vocalized. And it was really like, I used video. I used, I was, did a lot of like very specific isolated movement like Bouteau in it. I made the costumes. I created this seaweed mandala that every night I would, <laughs> I would have to drink every weekend, for every performance, I would have to get a new bunch of seaweed from the ocean, right? There's the ocean again, clean it dry it and then I would like I would paint it I would put flowers in it and in the opening scene I would come out of this mound of seaweed with masks on and I would go back into the mound to change the mask so it was all the faces of Lilith and it was it was an incredibly what's the word labor intensive show and it was very successful in in the world that was in I did a lot of one woman shows a lot of LA women's festival in LA I was at the Carpenter Center in Long Beach. I took it to Finland for a women's festival. It was down at Sushi in San Diego when Sushi was alive. That's where I premiered it, I think, yeah. So, and I was also pregnant with my daughter, three months pregnant when I first did it. So that was really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> So, so this was a one-person show, Lilith. It was. And, you know. it was. It was me. And at one point, oh, no, I think I had it at Huntington Beach first with a violinist on stage. And, yeah, she wasn't always with me. But, yeah. Sounds very avant-garde. So I, I guess it was. Yeah, it was, it was that one swinging back in time and to the present and the future. And my chiropractor had given me, like, one of those spines that they have. Yeah. And he said I could just keep it. So I used that and I had a pomegranate in, in, in the pelvic area that sat there. And I also use these masks that they use when you have radiation, like on your face, they make a, like a netted mask. So I hung those and I was able to kind of put my face in it and suspend myself and very, very cool. Neat. Oh, I think I saw a picture of that on your website. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You should bring that, you should do it again and bring it to the Fringe Festival that they have in France. It's similar to Edinburgh. Oh, they yeah. Love I, it. I, I think I'm too old for it now. Physically. You did this in the late 90s? Yeah, I yeah. did it in the 90s and the, I, maybe early, maybe 2000. I, I don't know. I, I don't know when I stopped. Doing I think it said 94 to 98. Yeah. Yeah. Gosh. I, can't I don't have the physical. Is. I don't know. I could probably. Yeah, you'd have to adapt it maybe. Yeah. Yeah, but think a lot of time has passed. Right. <laughs> I that blows my mind. I mean, I think, oh, that wasn't that long ago. Oh, yeah, it was. That's a long time yeah. ago. Yeah. yeah. So it sounds like you enjoy plays that explore, and you've said this on your website, dystopian worlds and identity and alienation and loss. Mm -hmm. is, is, what can you tell me about that? It sounds like Lilith was sort of in that ilk yeah i i think that all my plays that were work solo or ensemble i mean and things that i've written and 
plays I'm drawn to. I think loss and identity and alienation, those are like recurring themes for me. I have my own personal story of having lost my mother at a very long age, very long, very, very early age, and I'm adopted. There are just things that are built into that, that, that are part of my DNA, literally, that evoke that, that this theme keeps returning. And, and also, it's strange, but there's something about the, the Holocaust experience that in one form or another returns to a lot of things I do, whether it's just a German character or something literal from that time. Or one of the plays I wrote, Light Falling Down, was inspired by five years of interviews with women who's from Southern California who survived the, the Shoah or the Holocaust. I didn't seek it out. They just sort of came to me and they would want to tell me their story. And then I had all these stories I didn't know quite what to do with. So, and even in Lilith, there's an entertainer who's from, from, from the Holocaust who has to entertain for the Germans. So I don't know where that comes from. I mean, I have family way back. I have no idea who they were, but they were part of that. But well, it seems like, from my experience, people who've grown up in Jewish households have a lot of sort of historical grief around that whole horrible situation. And I would guess that's where it comes from. Yeah, they they have a word for it now, a, a term I forgot, but it has to do with like the the DNA has this memory, and I forgot what they what they call it now. Which is why, four generations forward, someone is still suffering because it's part of them. And the same thing with the slave experience. Yes, they've learned that your DNA can actually change from trauma, which is they didn't they had no idea that that was possible before, and they know that it does now. That's incredible, actually. It is incredible. Yeah. And, and I sort of, I think we always knew it on some level, a metaphysical level, a spiritual level. The, the ensemble piece that I did, I directed and wrote and had a small part in and produced. Before I left San Diego, American Carnage, A Love Story. That is also, I'm, I'm, I'm looking like, it's, it, was, it was in some ways really a, ahead of its moment, but... I, I call it an unlikely love story. It's like sci-fi. It's part thriller, and I and it. I was I was inspired to write it after the whole Trump, the year of Trump, the year after he became president, and that that pivotal moment where I say, "In there's a character who's who's Caligula, but he's really Trump. He's really a lot of dictators in this piece, and he has a monologue and." There's a there's a moment where the screen went from blue to red, like literally when he became president, it was the Obama transition. And then it was this fire engine red and the flag came on and the static and the anthem. So I, and I was just kind of it was that year after where everything was unbelievable. It was like one thing after another of, of such a high theater that you couldn't even you couldn't write this stuff. So that was my inspiration. And then out of that. I don't know, came this character, YML, stands for Young Male Lead, who's an octobot, because now we're, we're also transitioning into AI, into the, the robot. So he's an octobot, which is, he's evolved from like a species. So he's part part robot, part human. And he's exposed to the, the echoes of the second millennium, popular culture, which triggers these feelings in him from the, the, the Museum of Obsolete Media. 
And he didn't expect to have these feelings. He's kind of set up and he thinks he's playing like a video game, but it's real life. And he's tasked to like eliminate people. Really, it's like a, a genocide, right? So that was my foray into a, a more literal dystopian world. Sort of science fiction, dystopian, impressioned. <laughs> yeah, all at once. And I, I yeah, I, it's... When- when I read about that play, and you did that five or six years ago, what it made me ask myself is, I wonder if Amy had any idea how bad it could have gotten after that. Like, so many things kept happening in this country because of Trump and his creation of carnage, or whatever you want to call it. What do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I think I was tapping into something and this this could still be done now and and with the more technical fireworks uh, than than ever. I I mean, I had a a hologram presence, but I didn't use use an actual hologram. I had projections, but now I could use VR. I mean, but but content wise, I mean, I had. Yeah, right. I had no idea how how bad it could get. And of course, what was around the corner was the, the pandemic. Maybe you could add that in and and, and, rep- and produce it over with the pandemic in, in, in the story. <laughs> yeah, I still have the flats in storage and it's just, I never got rid of the set and I don't know, but I never, I just, I don't know, it's not the right moment. It's gotta be like the right time and place and moment. And I, I don't know who's interested in this kind of work here, but where I am right now, but that's another thing. (laughs) I mean, there was a time in the Bay Area when people were doing a lot of that kind of work. Yeah, George Coates. 30, 40, 50 years ago. Yeah, even, even, I don't know, I remember coming up. 10 or 15. Yeah, George Coates, he was Mm -hmm. phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, God, I guess it was a long time ago. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, things have changed. It's a little bit more mainstream now, I would say, but who knows? Things go in cycles. Right. What do you see as the biggest challenges facing our industry in the next few years? Hmm, I knew you were going to ask me that. (laughs) Do you want the answer I I would like to say or the answer I should say? (laughs) Whatever you want. I mean, I would like the answer that you would like to say if you feel if you feel comfortable with well, it. Well, I, I think there's a few challenges. One is the pandemic showed us that theater is disposable. And in what sense disposable? What? What do you mean it's disposable? Well, we can shut down everything, including theater. And I, I you know, theater has always struggled. It's always been hard to do what we do. And then and then add to that that people don't want to go outside. They don't want to sit next to you. They don't want to breathe your air. They don't want to be in a closed space with no windows. They'll go out to dinner and maybe get COVID from a waiter but or someone else, but they, they won't go to theater. So attendance has really fallen mm-hmm. and subscription-based is challenged. People are getting older and aging out of, of theater. So they have theater has to find a new audience that can afford to go to theater. So then, you, you know, places like Williamstown Theater Festival, they're, they're doing a lot less produ- producing. So they don't have as many shows, but because of that, they're not making the money they need. So it's Where are a, they located Massachusetts. Okay. They're a big house that, that does 
some great work that goes on, or, but they've had some, some issues come up. I, I mean, so, and I think, but from the, the digital, our transfer to the digital medium has showed us that it's not going away either. So I think theater has to pivot and has to incorporate some aspect of the digital medium, whether it's XR or VR or relying more on projections or Zoom in its many manifestations. I mean, I don't know if pure theater can sustain. That's going to be a big question, I think, in the in the next coming years, the new generation. And maybe it shouldn't, because I've always been interested in using other materials you know, and using multimedia, interdisciplinary, whatever. I mean, not always, but I, I just saw a doll's house in New York on Broadway and it was all, it was all minimal. They didn't really have a set except for something in the center that turned around circle. The lighting was black and very stark, a lot of shadows. They just wore black. There were no props. Yeah, I read about that in the Times. And it, they they pulled it off. And it was like, if you have very solid acting and directing, you can do it. Extraordinary, not just solid. But so I think that's one challenge. And another challenge is, I don't know how quite to say it, but I mean, we're, we're going to have to come to terms with the polarization that exists now. Between yeah. You mean within the community of, of theater makers? Yeah, between young theater makers and and older theater makers between white theater makers and BIPOC theater makers and who can do what and what's allowed to be done and what's allowed to be said and how how close we're going to ride within the margins and what the cross-cultural if any experience is going to be and and what what do we think theater is what 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 do we want to create in the future? What does the new generation want to create? Is it only based on identity politics and very, very literal? Or is there still a place for image as metaphor for art, for art's sake? And then the, the universal, universe, universality of that. And does do the politics come out of the art? Does the message come out of the art? But Art for art's sake is kind of a dirty, dirty phrase right now. And I, I, when I was listening to the other podcast episode that you did a few years ago with the with the other folks there, I forget the name of the podcast. Intellectual. Yes. And again, I'm not criticizing anybody here, but I just noticed at the end, he said something like, yes, we as artists are have a responsibility to tell people what they can and cannot say. And I just wanted to like heave. Because I just totally don't agree with that. I, I think that artists should be able to say what they want to say. And if you don't like it, you can say you don't like it. If you like it, you can say you like it. But the whole the literal the literalism and the the policing of what is okay to do and what isn't, I think that just kills things. Because we as artists, you need to push the limits in whatever direction you want. And people can decide for themselves what they like and don't like. That's yeah. my opinion. I mean, that's what art, art as anarchy is supposed to be. Yeah. I mean, there are things that I just, I can't, I can't do here. I, I will not, I didn't think I could do them in the Bay Area. And I, I mean, in San Diego and I did them, but I felt like the majority was more 
more uh, traditional work and tourist-based, and there's a strong military presence there. But here, it's like the other reason. People say, well, why don't you do this? And why don't you do that? And why don't you do... And I'm like, no, I can't do that here. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to produce that. I'm not going to direct a play like that here. And that's a recent phenomenon in San Francisco. And and that's what I'm having trouble coming to terms with because I I grew up in this area. I've lived here my whole life and I've been acting and directing here most of my life. And I'm having a hard time getting used to this, this whole sort of thing where it's okay to, to say certain things and it's not okay to say other things. And I always enjoyed the freedom and and the ability to express ourselves as artists in San Francisco and be accepted or not, but not be condemned. <laughs> and now you have to worry about every little thing you say and do. And I, I maybe I'm too, being too blunt about it, but that's how I feel. It would be great to have like a Lenny Bruce equivalent do a comedy routine about this. It would, and they'd have to be good at it. I mean, George Carlin used to be really good at it. He wasn't from San Francisco, of course, but we need people like that. Well, Chris, Chris, Chris Rock, his latest show on Netflix, Selective Outrage, is hilarious. I mean, I'm going to have to watch about, it. He talks about don't fall into the woke trap. Yeah, and it's like, and if you say that to a lot of progressive people, they get so angry. Yeah, and and then they call you a a Republican and a MAGA, <laughs> and I think there's a good, I just don't, I don't even want to use the word woke anymore because it, it it's so loaded now. Yeah. I said to me that the Bay Area is very binary. The theater world is very binary. In what sense? Either or, right? Mm. Yeah. I mean, non-binary is is term used to about to denote gender or the lack of gender or the flexibility of, of, of gender, right? But she said it's very binary here. It's either this or that. Yes. You're this or you're that. You're right. with us or you're against us. Right. Whatever group it happens to be. And and and, and there's no hesitancy to, to call you out on things <laughs> without even trying to understand where you're coming from. Yeah. And some of it's generational, too. I, I feel like there's very little respect for people who have come before, who have a lot of experience, who may have some something to impart there's no no interest in that no no there there isn't i even have i have i have those conflicts with my own 20 year old son he there's sort of a and, and of course young people always believe that they're smarter than the old right i mean i did but it's to the point now where they're absolutely sure about it <laughs> and i and maybe I'm just become an old curmudgeon, but I can't figure, I'm just having a hard time figuring out how to, to navigate that whole sort of phenomena. But it's like, it's as if we don't know anything. We just don't, we just aren't up on the latest intellectual understanding of how people should be in society. I'm trying to see it as a learning experience now. Gosh, you've won lots of awards. The Asian Cultural Council Fellowship. Is that the one where you went to Japan? It is, yeah. Oh, can, can I hear about that? I, that I found that really interesting. Yeah, that was great. I, I did. I there was a time. There was a time uh, where grants were really plentiful, and I'm still harder now. But I self-taught, was self-taught gram writer, and gave them the lingo they wanted to hear, and got the grants most of the time, and 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 followed through. But I just taught myself 
the the language and that was one of the best ones and when i got the grant they basically like gave me the money and connected me to someone from i think the japan society who gave me some names and connected me to this no this american who was living in japan forever as a, a no master and teacher and he had the biggest house in tokyo so I stayed with him, but could you tell us yeah. what no theater is so that people will know what you're talking about? Yeah, no is the classical theater of Japan, and they use masks that represent characters that are like beautifully painted masks, and they don't cover the whole face deliberately. And it's a it's a dance movement. It has a whole vocabulary. It's extremely slow meticulous you wear certain shoes you move on stage a certain way with lifting the foot and putting it down you open the fan a certain way and they have all these set dances like like a, a classical repertoire and they have like the bridge that goes to heaven is always on the set kyogen is the comedic side of no and they play a certain music on stage i forgot the name of the the primary instrument right now but that is always accompanying accompanying the piece. It's beautiful. It's very hard. I was able to perform on the national no stage and they sew you into your kimono. And yeah, it was really, really hard. I I actually studied Buteau more than no when I was there. What is Buteau? Buteau is like the Enkuko Buteau. It's the it's the it's the dance of darkness, it's called. It's more symbolic. It's symbolic and metaphoric in a different way. And it came about post-war, post-World War II, after Hiroshima. And Hijikata was like the, the I guess, the founder of, of Buteau in a way. But then there's Kazuo Ono, uh, a, lot of, a lot of different masters. I don't know if you remember, know of Sankai Juku. They kind of, they've toured all over America. I studied with them. And I interviewed a lot of the masters, Min Tanaka, who had a farm where he would like teach people how to how to work on the farm and, and like kind of almost break down your body. And then you can also learn Buteau at the same way. I, I planted rice on that farm, but very physical, very, very slow movement and very, very fast movement and a lot of uh, using a lot of imagery exhausting, exhausting work. It's the best way to describe it. It's a, it. They wear a lot of white, white, almost white face, but not not in the traditional clown sense, but not always, but a lot of times white face, white body, done in the nude, done with barely any clothing, done with costume, like it, it just depends. It's fascinating, fascinating. So I studied that and I studied a little kabuki and a little bunraku, which is their classical puppetry form. Basically, I was given money and said, do whatever you want to do. Write us a little note at the end of what your trip was like and have a good time. What and an they, incredible experience. And I was very nervous because it was so unstructured. But they said, you're going to you're going to look at this as the best grant you ever got. And they were right. Because the people I met that were doing what I was doing or trying to were teaching English all day and, and then trying to have to study and, and or perform and go to go to plays and I saw so much theater and dance and I went to Hokkaido too which was completely different culture and saw some rituals and festivals and I went to Kyoto and yeah I had a great time I had a great time when was this and how long 
I was there for wow. four months and it was the 90, 95, 1995. Yeah. What an incredible experience. I feel like a dinosaur. Yeah. The year before I went to Russia and that was an experience working with the theater there because they were recently had transitioned sort of out of communism. So that was interesting. And then I went to Japan. Yeah. What did you do in Russia? I taught and I directed at the, at this experimental theater and conservatory in Pushkin where St. where Catherine the Great's castle was. A little, little city outside of St. Petersburg. Very interesting. Yeah. So wow. that was cool. Wow. You've had so many great experiences. Yeah. I have to remind myself that when I feel like in those dry times when you're not doing anything theater related. That's the thing about this whole profession. It's like, you know, we just think back and say, oh, those were the good times when I was doing all the wonderful things and now I'm not doing anything, but you don't know because things come up or you can make things happen sometimes. Yeah. I, I think that that's, that's what people have to do and hold on to. You can't just wait for someone to give you a gig. You got to mm -hmm. create your own work. You do. You do. Especially as time goes on and the decades keep moving forward. <laughs> <laughs> I had a little bit experience of experience working with who had trained in Japan and what I loved about it because he just let us dip our toes into it was the physicality of it like you said and how in the united states because of stanislavski and 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 the method we kind of do things from the inside out but tell me if i'm wrong here but what it seemed to me was there was a lot of taking something on physically and then letting it get into you and i i actually loved it yeah. that, and in fact and, and it seemed it was a completely different experience. It, it felt more surreal and it, it enlivened me. I, I loved the little bit of it that I did. Yeah, uh, Wynne Hanman used to say, suit the action to the word and the word to the action. And the way you play Shaw is completely different from the way you're going to play Shepard. And, and Sam Shepard is about music and Shaw is about words. And so everything is has, has to be treated uh, according to the form, or you re you really can ruin something. In, in Japan, they've spent centuries refining the form. So yeah, it comes from the outside in. A lot of it is taught by re repetition. A lot of it is transmitted from father to son. It's a sexist, but like in no, they strap the baby on the dad's back when they're young and the father goes through the moves. And I, I struggled with it at first because first of all, it's some of it was completely foreign. Some of it I felt like I knew already in my body. And I'd worked with a lot of the Greek stuff and I'm very physical. But they give you the fan and they show you something like three times and you're supposed to repeat it. And that's it. Even I got hit because I didn't open a fan correctly or something. So they whack you. And I was just like, my gosh, that does <laughs> not happen back home or in the West. And right. I, I, I remember just being enraged by this tiny man who was like the master who smacked me. But I digress. But yeah, very, very, a lot of things are from the outside in. And but when they, they talk about the, the ma and the why, this moment of expansiveness and no with silence and breath where everything stops and you can't help but feel from that. And kabuki is very physical. 
So a lot of that has to has to happen from the from the outside in. I'd say Buteau is different. Like Buteau reminded me a little more of Grotowski's work, where it's very very physical and very internal, and it's just kind of laid bare, laid bare. <laughs> well, it's it's so it's such an education to go to another country like that that's had so many centuries of a technique that's developed. It's so different. Yeah, and so much tension and patience. Just when you think about it, like the the Bunraku master puppeteers, like there's there's one person for each part. There's one puppeteer that spends his lifetime working on only the left arm of the puppet. <laughs> only the left arm. It's like, yeah, it, yeah. The 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 puppetry it was phenomenal so emotional and lifelike and vulnerable yeah it, it's true this is sort of everything they do there like the the flower arranging the tea ceremonies i would say it's close close to perfection just very enviable that that discipline now you've also written some books yeah i'm working on one now i just i must i must finish this first draft i i do not want to be one of those people who for the for the rest of their life talks about the book they're working on what I are you hate, working on i hate those people <laughs> <laughs> i'm afraid that it's gonna be me oh no well this book is a long time coming and it's really i wrote a screenplay called birthright um which was about my own story and, and in essence, meeting my biological parents and what, what ensued after that. And I had some good feedback from it, but I didn't keep pushing it and I didn't have the money to produce it. So it's, it's on, on the desktop, like a lot of things. But I had a friend who was very inspirational, who just kept saying, this is, you should write a book. These are stranger than fiction, these, these, this story and just write a book. And so writing a book, it's auto fiction, I guess you'd call it. I don't want to call it memoir because I do fictionalize some things and I'd like to stay pure to the term memoir. But I think auto fiction is the, the most current genre I can fit it into. It's kind of genre bending a little bit. And yeah, so I've been working on that. So I it's inspired it. about you meeting your biological parents? No. Yes, it's inspired by that. Yeah, there were there was a set of circumstances that were kind of extraordinary that uh, nobody really knew. So you want to share what those were? No. Okay. Well, you'll have to read the book. <laughs> okay. Well, it better happen then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> there was like a coincidence that really couldn't have been quite a coincidence, but oh, you know, that, that's like the that's that's part of it. It's not the whole thing. But then we go back to those themes again of identity and, and loss and discovery. And so I just took a recent trip back to New York and stumbled upon a lot of the settings that are in the book. And that was kind of cool. Yeah. So it was it it made it all fresh again. It, it's hard to it's hard to write about and it's hard to write a book. It's easy to write a play in some ways. It's easy to write a performance. It's easy. I've been an arts journalist, too for a period of time when my kids were little and it's easy. You have a story, you have a word count, but a book is like this, this, this pool that you dive into. And then you, then you, then I get stuck in all this research and then I go down this rabbit hole and then I, I 
And then I get, and then it's just too much and I put it away and then I, I need some distance. And, and then I, well, is it, is it, was the structure good? Is it right? Is it point? What's the point of view? Is it, is it first person, third person, omniscient? Does it matter? Like, I don't know. So. Very wide open. There's all the rules and then you can break the rules, but you have to sort of know how you're breaking the rules and have some kind of pattern in the breaking of the rules. Yes. Yes. I, 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 I can understand that because in a, in a play or a screenplay, you have your two act or your three act play or your three act screenplay. And most, most screenplays follow that sort of structure and you're limited in terms of describing the situation indoors or outdoors, you have the dialogue and then you have to keep things moving. But in a, in a book, you can kind of do whatever you want. Yeah. As many yeah, pages as you feel like. You can. <laughs> yeah. You can do what you want. And I'm just going to, I'm just doing what I want. I I, I took a, a workshop with this writer and agent and I just agonized during the whole thing about this, this point of view, because it's very important. But I do like switch point of view, which is to some editors and publishers and agents that's like a and readers that's like a a, a sin but it's like that's what i keep going back to that i'm in the story and then i'm i comment on the story i mean and in my own form so that's where i'm at now i could write a a, a pure memoir right i remember when i was the but it's not it's not happening like that so I'm all about that because Win Hanman too, see, he really stuck with me. He said ballast, and he says it in this documentary, ballast yourself in reality, then take off. And it's really fundamental in any art form. Know the foundation, know the classics, know Shakespeare and know Moliere and, and know Shaw and know modern drama. Know it, know it, know how to play it, know the music of it, analyze it, know, know you know, how to, how to find your objectives and your beats, all that. And then you want to, you want to do something different or what could be called experimental or whatever, break the form, break it, know what you're breaking and then break the form, break the convention, start your own. I think it's possible with anything, but you have to know, you have to have the background and is an interesting little scene. I don't know if you saw Tar with Kate Blanchett. Movie. It's a great scene that's become very controversial. And I, I always want to ask young people what they think of it. But she's in a, she's a conductor and she's in a class. So remember the scene when she's at Juilliard and she's teaching a class? Yes, very I much. Think, I very much remember that scene. Remember that scene? And, <laughs> yeah. she, she said, and he said, I, I can't relate. I'm, I'm a person of color and I, I can't relate to Bach. And she said, well, you, you better know Bach because... Because of what he did, because of how he broke the rules and what he established and how it influenced music, every, every culture. And then you can decide what you want to do about Bach. But yeah, that scene was very controversial, right? Yes, but it was. But I think that that scene sort of exactly outlines what we were discussing before about this the conflict that exists right now in, in art. Right. And I loved that scene. And I can understand why people are upset with it. I can also understand why I think it's a great scene. Yeah. Uh, and I'm glad that they had the, the nerve to stick it in there and not take it out of the movie. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, me too. I was really... Because um, it makes people have a conversation, and I'm glad that they did it. And, right. it, 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 it. and it is a controversial scene, and I understand why, but I think it was important to keep it in. Yeah, me too. 
Me too. I was I was shocked too that it was in there and it's a question you have to have, right? I mean, mm -hmm. and it's also it also the whole thing about motivation, like what was her motivation? Is she racist? Is she ageist? Is she not? Is she just trying to teach a lesson? And you can make all these judgments about a person, but you really don't know what's going on inside her head. Right. Until you have the conversation. Yeah. Until you ask her. Yeah. And then you decide if she's telling the truth. Right. Right. It's it's so complicated and we're facing these things. And I hope that we can. Well, eventually we'll, we'll sort it out. We'll so this is the question and the conversations we should be having. Absolutely. I'm so excited right now that we're having this. Yeah, that we're having, but I mean, yeah. we should also be able to have these conversations together with the younger generation and with yeah. artists. Yeah. Instead of just having the door shut, it's like, why why can't we have these conversations? I have tried a couple of times, and I think every time it's been on Zoom. And what's happened every single time? The person I was trying to have a conversation with or a group of people, some people actually get so upset they hang up. And and I did nothing disrespectful. I just asked a question because I'm trying to understand something. And you people get so emotional they can't do it. Yeah, they they feel like they they don't have to and don't want to teach anyone or explain anything. Yeah, it's called emotional labor, I guess. From yeah. Yeah. Which I don't understand that either. I mean, everyone has to do some labor if you're gonna understand what's going on in another person's head or what it's like to be in their shoes. Right, right. But we'll get there. <laughs> I have so much hope. I, I think that people, everything always swings back and forth and somehow gets to the middle and then things get screwed up again and then we get back to the middle. And right now we're just sort of on one side of the pendulum, I believe, and we'll return. Yeah. yeah. It's painful being on one side of the pendulum, but... It's you the know, hardest one I've ever been through in my lifetime. Yeah. In terms of in terms of the the art 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 world or the the performance world or entertainment or whatever you want to call and it. And we should be able to do work about this. We really should be able to put, yeah. put this in a play and put it on stage and let people chew on it and think about it. Yeah. 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 I mean, and I understand where people's grievances come from. I totally do whether it's age or race or whatever, I understand. What advice would you give somebody who wants to get into, to, into this world of theater or film or writing? I don't think it's responsible for older people to put people in leadership roles that have no training or experience. I think if you want to get into it, commit to it, get the training. If it's, if it's the burning passion, then put the discipline behind it figure out what your voice is and what you want to say really i mean there's so many ways to go about things i i i left the commercial world and sometimes i regret that but when i see people i know on on television usually but oh, that, how that feels yeah so i don't know you have to decide like why you're an artist and i do think people should get other skills i i do think my father said that and i said it to my kids like you don't want to be a waiter your whole life, right? If things don't work out, you should know how to how to uh, monetize monetize different aspects of your your skill set so that you're not dependent. I think that there's a desperation in this business that's really dangerous. It draws people that have a lot of trauma and a lot of unresolved issues and a lot of insecurities 
And that emptiness, that abyss, and when they're not working, you just kind of fall into that abyss. Well, I'm worthless and that. It's just very dangerous, I think. And you have to get your shit together. You have to be grounded. You have to have a center. You have to be stable. So all those things are important. So, yeah, just just as a footnote, because I've been talking about so many things that I did in the the 90s the 2000s but so since i came here i did do a it was it was on, it was in the marsh during covid and uh dragon theater which no longer exists but i did do a show the making of american carnage was like a solo satire almost of the whole experience because it was a lot of a lot of replacing of people a revolving door of actors for one one reason or another had things going on in their life where they couldn't commit to the project. And so anyway, that was interesting. And then I've, I've just done a lot of readings of new plays and some online, some live, but something I'm working on, which is a, is a long-term project that, but I'm excited about it. It's about climate change and it's going to be bi-coastal and we're trying to do a live performance and a virtual performance and somehow integrate that and even incorporate the the this the mid coast right the gulf coast so i have a a partner in new york who runs peculiar theater works and so we're working with our writers now and it's a long haul but so is climate change right and it's a piece about climate change is it a play yeah, I'd say like we have the writers working on different, they're each working on their different scenes. I don't know if it's going to wind up being like a series or a play or a play and performance. We'd like a live component, but we also want to explore a lot of the, the new technologies. And that's going to be the, the hard, the hardest part, I think. Yeah, but I think that's a good, good idea. Like you said earlier, I think we have to incorporate that into our performances for to to stay up with to stay current to get people to come i saw a oh who what was the writer i can't remember the writer it's a writer a, a a classic i can't remember who it was right off the top of my head but it was at act about 10 years ago and it was a canadian theater company that came down and they did music and and they did like gymnastics and it was a it was like a classic play i can't remember which one but they had a screen that filled the entire back of the Geary Theater and it was video black and white with incredible sound that sounded extremely realistic and it was a subway most of the time with a train going by and people on stage would go through the screen and then all of a sudden they would be in the play as an actor on the screen like just continuing the scene seamlessly yeah yeah it was incredible that great was that Robert Lepage, the Canadian? I think so. Yeah, and they had these amazing musicians, and all the actors were musicians. Yeah, I, I love stuff like that. Oh, me too. It was it was just amazing. So I just hope we can do more of that kind of thing. Well, it sounds interesting what you're doing with this climate change thing. I'll be looking forward to that. Yeah, I hope I can actually introduce the West Coast end here. I might have to go to LA to do it. <laughs> Did you did you direct a play up in San Anselmo a couple of years ago? I did last summer. Last summer, that oh, was what, what, what was it? My first live return to the theater. It was Will Eno's the the realistic Joneses. It's a very difficult play, very quirky. 
Uh, he says he's very influenced by Samuel Beckett, who, as well as I. I mean, uh, Waiting for Godot is one of, if not my favorite plays, and I, I did direct a version of that. Very challenging. And, and I could see why he says that, but it, I guess it was the kind of the obtuse language, you know, this sort of going nowhere kind of scenario. Two couples, one older, one younger, both of them, the males, the males of the couples have illnesses, the same illness, and you find that out towards the end of the play. So it deals with mortality and aging as well. It was a challenging experience, though, I must say. I, I, you asked in these questions about like failure. I, I don't, I wouldn't say I failed at, at, at the experience totally, but it wasn't, I, I usually feel, you always have a sense, oh, I could do more, more, could be more, could be more. But I don't think it tested on the level that I, I wanted it to. And, and some of it was really out of my control just the circumstances. And I think it's really hard for me as a director not to start with ground zero. I like training my actors a certain way. And I, I, if they don't have those skills, especially if I'm creating something that has a very physical vocabulary to it, I want them to be open to that. I like casting my people from the beginning I don't like being told who I'm going to be working with if I haven't worked with them and I don't know if there's a compatibility. So, and I just, it's just a different, I just have a very, and certain materials we talked about, you got to go in the inside out. You got to go from the inside out, unless it's very stylized or very physical or classical in a certain way, you have to go from the inside out. And so sometimes actors are, are not willing to do that. So yeah, no, I totally understand what you're saying. I mean, I'll, I'll just I'll be more specific so that you don't have to. <laughs> I mean, I had to direct a, a pinter pinter play once betrayal. And it's sort of like that. It's not linear. It requires a lot of inside out acting. And I had one actor who wasn't coming to rehearsal, and I had to replace him last minute. Fortunately, I got a really good actor. But I had a I had a weak area and it was the set designer <laughs> and the set wasn't designed and there's so many scenes and they happen like this and you have to set something up especially when you don't have money to make it work and and it didn't and and then I let somebody else do the sound and it wasn't interesting enough between the scene changes and people were like why is this going on forever these scene changes I mean when you do these plays that that are like really physical or sort of abstract or whatever you really have to, everything kind of has to fit together because there are a lot of areas that can fall down yeah it has to be tight yeah yeah and that's, that's the director's prerogative and the eye and the rhythm and you have to you can collaborate and i i, I know that if you have a company and you're collaborating right but i know that that the the style now is more collaborative where everybody has a say in it but you still have to have the leader of the ship the the pilot of the plane the person that asked you to go 100 miles into the wall with with you is that the style now i've heard that from my my daughter who's oh, okay. in the theater and my my actually my husband said that he's been reading a lot about that leadership styles now are much more collaborative everybody feels like they have to have a say and an equal equal part equal say nothing gets decided till everybody agrees and 
It's a lot of time for that. That's a lot of time. And that that has to be ground up too. That's like developing. We're all developing this together. But I've been in those situations and sometimes they work when there's a lot of trust in history. And sometimes you still have to have the person that at the end of the line who says yes or no. Well, especially when you're producing a play. And as you said before, it's difficult. And part of it is a financial issue. And you have three, four, five weeks maybe to put the thing together. And if there's not one person kind of making sure everything keeps driving forward, you can get way behind. Right. And I see why people work together with the same people again and again, right? But then you also, oh, it's not fair. You need new blood. You're not letting anyone in the door. But I, I just have a certain ethic, like, because it's how I was trained. And it's like an off-Broadway, an off-off-Broadway thing. And it's people yelling yelling at me, right? Like you eat, breathe, sleep, theater. So I can't help it. I, I've tried to like ease up a little when people have hobbies and this and family and that, and I got to go through this. I got to surf. I got to go eat pizza, whatever it is. <laughs> but, San Diego, I got to surf. Yeah. But there's just a, a way of ethics, like separating the, the pedestrian from, from what's more like, what's the word? Sacred. The pedestrian life from what this is the sacred space is right the empty space and and it's just if you, if you don't have that it's a disaster you try to lay it down you try to inculcate people you, you try to establish that and people still you know they do what they want they 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 bring in all their issues and problems they're late i mean if i say come to rehearsal and know your lines you've had six months to work since you've been cast we don't have much time. And I don't like to do that. I like to discover and learn the lines through discovery. But sometimes you have to be pretty much off book, especially if you have a play that's very complicated or the language is very obtuse and it's not, it's not like a typical arc and it's very confusing. And there's so many this, that, but, that, and you want to nail all of them. And they don't come to rehearsal with their lines memorized. And you're spending half of your rehearsal helping them memorize their lines. Oh, I know. It's just, right? I, was, I was in a play a few months ago. I won't say where or what, because I don't want to implicate anybody, but it was with a, a bunch of very young people. And I probably was the oldest person there just because of the way the play was set up. And the director said, I want you to come in off book on the first rehearsal because we were cast like six months before. Right. So I learned all my lines and it was a lot of lines. And I walked in and we did the, and I realized I was the only one out of this cast of 20 people, I think, who knew their lines. I was just, I couldn't believe it. And, and you were probably the oldest one, right? I was. But you had the, the, you had the, the best excuse not to be memorized because it's harder to memorize as you age. Yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, I'm still okay with that. But yeah, it is a little harder. Yeah, it is harder because I remember when I was younger, if I had to, I could get them all done in a week. The world's changing. Just a yeah. bunch of curmudgeons. Right. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's enough to make you want to just throw your arms up a little bit, right? Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm getting better, though, at learning, like, it's not really worth it, my time and my energy and my skills, if it's not worth it. If I get those signals that this isn't going to work out, then I just have to follow them, even if I really want to be doing something. And, and sometimes it's like that. I was recently going to have a little small part in a small film here, and it was just like they were 
They just didn't have their organization together. There are big gaps of time where no one's communicating. They're expecting you for nine hours, then it became 12 hours, and they're not necessarily going to feed you. And it's just like, well, yeah. There's a lot of that going on with film in the Bay Area. It's a hobby. Yeah. It's a a lot of technical people. They're doing these ultra low budget passion projects. That's what they call them. And I'm not really, even if the script is good or the role is good, like, I don't, I'm not, what's that about? It's like, you're just a vehicle in someone's little hobby. It's a home movie almost. Yeah. And then sometimes they don't even put it out there for anybody to see. Yeah. I've done a few things where it's, okay, where's the movie? Well, I didn't really finish it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Or you, you expect, like, even on freebies, you expect a credit, a copy, and something that says you're going to get a copy and you're going to get a credit, or you're going to get paid, or you're going to get fed. I mean, right. I, I have a film I'd like to do, a short film, and I'm going to pay. I'm going to pay the actors and I'm going to feed them. And I'm going to do it right. What's it going to be about? It's it's just, I just want to use two people. And it's, it's, it's again, going into the world of AI. When one of the characters is kind of is, is prescient and not quite what the other character wanted. Because she's going to have feelings and her things. So, but then there's like a, a little, what's it called? These words are just escaping me. When you have an ending that's kind of like a surprise twist, twist, a twist, twist ending. Okay. Yeah, there's yeah. a twist ending. So that that's kind of where I'm at now and exploring. Mm-hmm. I just started writing it, but I want to. I don't want to juggle too many balls at once because then you feel like I know people do that, but it kind of drives me crazy. So. I heard you talking about Uncanny Valley on the in the other show, and uh, there's actually a play called Uncanny Valley. I know the pair did that, right? They did. Did you see it? No, oh. no, but they did it in San Diego too. And I, I just got, became fascinated with the term that, that where it's just so, wow, this person seems human. They seem really human, but they're not, but they almost are. Right. But yeah. I really enjoyed that show. I, 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 yeah, I want to read it. Yeah. It's, it's really good. It's really good. There's a TV show called The Orville that's the, the brainchild of Seth MacFarlane on Hulu. I don't know if you've heard oh, of it. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a character on there called Isaac, and he's from a species of people who are AI robots who took over their planet and killed all of the living people, they find out later. Wow. But he's on the crew of The Orville, and he's that that species of robots is at war with people from Earth, although he's on the Earth people side for various reasons. But it's fascinating because he claims to have no feelings, kind of like Spock right? in the original Star Trek. But he constantly claims that he has no feelings, and you have to believe him because he's a robot <laughs> with an AI, and he's, his intelligence is so much superior to everyone else's. However, you just don't believe him. And, and it's very confusing. And it's it's really, I love it. That's my favorite part of the show. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. yeah. If you get a chance, you can watch it. And, the Orville. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, season one is a lot of hacky humor, sort of family guy-ish, and I loved it, but the critics panned it. And then as season two and three evolve, it gets more serious and more just like regular Star Trek and less 
humor, although he still keeps it in, but it's not so over the top. But that character is fascinating. I find him fascinating because I think that's something we're going to be dealing with. Well, we're dealing with it now. Yeah, I mean, especially with this new chat thing, this chat GPT. Yeah. Yeah. Frightening. Frightening. Yeah, it could be. It could be so helpful to to the world and it could also destroy the world i I was reading an article about the sam i can't remember his last name but he's like the the creator of the frankenstein and i was in the times last week and he's just like he's this young dude and he's like i I think it's going to be all i think it's going to be okay and and there's been like many many ai companies that are trying to put a stop to it because they think it's out it's going to get out of control I think I heard that guy talking also somewhere. Yeah. Well, we'll uh, see. I'm, it's going to happen I fast. Be, I'm glad I won't be alive for all of this. I, I, I have to honestly say that I'm, I'm, I, I really don't want to be in the, in the far future where we're all robots. I, I, I can't even deal with American Express or whoever else I call and it's a robot and I know it. And they're saying, press number one. Would you, you know, I just can't, I just start screaming at them. You are a robot. <laughs> and it sounds like a real person. But it doesn't. Yeah, but I know. Something they, inside, this isn't really a person. Yeah, they're lacking that. It's the uncanny valley, right? They're yeah. lacking like that little, the veneer or something like underneath the veneer, they're, they're, they're any kind of relational quality, any empathy, anything. They're lacking it. You tell. I think there's going to come a time where we won't be able to tell. And that's. It's coming already. You see some of these these videos. What do they call them when they do the deep fake? Yeah, yeah. I mean, some of them are pretty good. Uh, it's getting harder and harder to tell. And that's scary because you could have the leader of a country like, waging war or something, and uh, he didn't really wage war. Right. On TV. Right. Well, what about that? When I was in New York, I saw this. I went to the Whitney, and they had a very, I think it was called Reconfigure. It's very small part, very small exhibit that they didn't really talk about. It was like, besides their permanent collection, it was the best thing in the museum. And they had this whole creation of the, and they kind of morphed and deformed her. But I don't know if you remember the the AI that Microsoft created, I think in 2016, and then they had to shut it down because she was basically saying what, what, what people were telling her to say. And it was stuff like it was anti-Semitic, it was fascist, it was misogynist. She was supposed to be like a young girl. She was just repeating like horrible things, horrible things. So then this guy created this piece about it and he totally deformed the face and he has her commenting on what happened to her. And it was, and it's like meta. I mean, you don't know what's real and what, and it was great. I'm like, thanks, Amy. Covered the gamut. Yeah, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks, everybody, for making it there to the end. I'm so glad that you stuck around. And if you enjoyed this, which I'm sure you did, please give me a rating on Apple Podcasts, a favorable rating, and tell your friends about this so that we can get more listeners. And again, until next time, I will see you on the boards Take care of yourselves, baby.